listening to Law and Gospel on this Bible study Wednesday, April the 24th in the year of our Lord 2019. And this will be the last live broadcast of uh, Law and Gospel this week because of the share occurring on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We're going to be taking a look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, why are we looking at that? There is a very common misunderstanding concerning the Bible. And when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, I would dare say that 90% of the people you're talking to think you're talking about the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament, when in reality, those phrases are never used in the Bible to refer to the books. The Old Testament, another translation is covenant, is found in the Old Testament books, but so also is the New Covenant or the New Testament found in the Old Testament books. So we're going to be taking a look at the distinction between what the Bible, what God refers to as Old and New Testament. And one of the best chapters to look at is Hebrews chapter 8. So without further ado, let's go. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have uh, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, this follows after chapter 7, talking about that the law, and that would be the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament books, appointed men in their weaknesses high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And that's what they're talking about in verse 1. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand. Now, we just finished the festival of the resurrection. Uh, Coming up will be the next festival of the ascension. That's 40 days after the resurrection when Jesus ascends into the heaven at the right hand of God. And if you want to find a passage that really explains that, you would go to the verses Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. But we're going to stick with Hebrews 8 right now. So, he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Who's the throne of the majesty? That's none other than God the Father. And he is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, we have to remember what the true tent is. Remember the first tent, the tent of Tabernacle, uh, done by Moses, following the directions of God. I'm, uh, in my travels around, I'm listening to uh, the Bible on CDs, and it was really quite amazing as I'm starting in Genesis, I'm up into Deuteronomy right now, But the description that God gave Moses as to how the tabernacle was to be erected is quite extensive. 
and you really needed the best of sewers, the best of carpenters to put that tent together. Well, this verse is talking about the true tent is none other uh, than heaven itself. Uh, The word tent there can also be translated as tabernacle. And the Lord has set up heaven. That's not something that man was able to build. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In other words, Jesus Christ becomes the fulfillment of what was occurring in the Old Testament books under the ceremonial laws. And in the Old Testament priests, they had something to offer. And there were all kinds of sacrifices. Animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, it all kind of depended on the situation of the person and what sin they had done. Now, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So, if he's just here on earth, that's not sufficient. Instead, he would be somebody else because priests on earth were from the priestly tribe of Levi, and this priest is not. Verse 5. Now we're talking about the priests on earth. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And that's what I was talking about. I mean, there is just extensive directions uh, about the height of items and the width of items and where they are to be put and how the temple is to be or the tabernacle is to be uh, carried around. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, what's the writer to the Hebrews talking about? If you take a look at Exodus 24, you find there that God has sacrifices and Moses puts blood over the altar and sprinkles blood on the people and then they make a promise. All these things we will do and obey. That's the old covenant promises that are enacted both by God. He makes promises that if you do obey me, then everything's going to be fine. And the promises of man. So what does it mean that the new covenant is based on better promises? Well, we're going to find that out in a second. But first, verse 7, chapter 8 of Hebrews. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, 
The first covenant is not faultless because it's based on the promises of man of which they cannot keep those promises. The Tower of Babel showed that, but also when Moses was on the mountain taking a long time to come down, they made a golden calf. These people who had promised, boy, we're going to follow God's will. But God, now this is explaining why that first covenant was not good. Verse 8, for he finds fault then with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, there is promises of the new covenant found in the Old Testament books. For example, Genesis chapter 3. God, speaking to the serpent, the devil, indicates that Eve, through her, will come a Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent, even though he will bruise the heel of the Messiah. Well, that's talking about Jesus. By the way, in chapter 4 of Genesis, Eve gets the impression that Cain is the promised Messiah. Well, he was not the Messiah. He was the first murderer. At any rate, this is a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Why, Why does he say that? Well, Israel, you know, Jacob had 12 sons. And guess what? The house of Judah is through whom Jesus came. So God even makes it more clear, the difference. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that covenant was based on their promises. Oh, we're going to obey everything you say. What does God say about that in verse 9? For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. One thing I get from reading all of these passages in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is how many times the people of Israel would rebel against God. I I, I can hardly imagine that if I had been going through the Red Sea, no matter what God would say from there, I would not rebel. Don't you feel that way sometimes? And, And yet God did something greater for you than go through the Red Sea and that was to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. And guess what? You still rebel against God each and every day by thought, word, and deed. So the people, they had to travel another 38 years in the wilderness because they rebelled against God and didn't think he would be strong enough to take them into the land of Canaan because they were like grasshoppers compared to the men that were there, according to 10 of the spies. And boy, oh boy, they didn't want to go. 
And so God showed no concern for them in that sense, because when he said, okay, you're going back in the wilderness for 38 years, he, they said, okay, we'll go, we'll go fight them. And when they went up to fight the people in Canaan, they were defeated because God had no concern for them since they had broken his covenant. So what's this new covenant? Well, it begins in verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, the, the word covenant here, we've talked about, you know, also as testament. It, it's kind of an agreement. Uh, two nations would be battling and one becomes the victor. Then there becomes a covenant between them and the victor pretty well sets the stage. And this happened after World War One, after World War Two, and in other battles that have occurred recently where there's a kind of a treaty. Okay, we won't do this. We won't do that. Uh, we'll have to pay for a lot of the damage we did, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's the new covenant that God is making with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What does that mean? That means, is really referring to the wonderful baptism at Pentecost that we're going to receive, where we get two gifts. The gift of the forgiveness of sins, that's pretty obvious, and also the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when it says, I will put my laws in their minds, as we Christians study the Bible and hear the laws of God, we say, the word says it, that settles it. Because we now have a mind of faith that David talked about in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So now this is not laws that have to be written out in order that we might know what God's will is. No, once we hear the laws, uh, either in confirmation, in Sunday school, etc., we believe them because they're written on our new heart that was created at our time when we were converted. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. You see, this is a common teaching in the Scripture that it is impossible for an unbeliever to make a decision to know the Lord until the Lord comes to the unbeliever or the lost sheep finds it, puts it on his shoulders, and carries it home, they will not know the Lord. And that's explained at the rest of the part of verse 11. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's a tremendous message concerning that I am the Lord your God, he says that in Exodus 20, because I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The, the commandments that follow there are not the reason and our obedience to them why 
God becomes our Lord. He becomes our Lord first. Then he gives us the commandments. And so the best way to read Exodus 20 is, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, when we have that kind of a relationship, you will have no other gods before me. You will not take my name in vain. You will remember my Sabbath day. They're actually promises of the future when you have this proper relationship with God. So, this is what the new covenant is. And that new covenant comes about by hearing the word of God or by being baptized. For when you are baptized, guess what? You receive the word of God. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, we need to look at that a little bit. God's mercy means when somebody is merciful towards you, it means you're not going to get what you deserve. So let's say you make fun of somebody and they hear about it and they come, but they don't make fun of you. They're merciful. To be gracious means you get something you don't deserve. And that's what God has given us. He's merciful in that he does not give us the punishment we deserve. He's gracious in that he gives us the forgiveness of sins. And that's what he says here. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, we've talked about the word remember, but in case you're a a new listener to Law and Gospel, let me just summarize it. There's two ways of understanding remember. It can be a memory thing, but it also can be an action. I've said this a number of times. Let's say it was my wife's birthday yesterday, and I didn't give her anything. And the next day she said, did you remember it was my birthday yesterday? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I had it on my mind all day long. (laughs) No, that's not what she means by remember. Is there a gift? So to remember their sins no more doesn't mean that he's going to forget about them. He can't. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But to remember the sins no more means he's not going to get even with us. We're not going to receive the punishment we deserve. And that's why he is merciful toward their iniquities. Now, the word iniquity can also be translated as sins. It can also be translated as trespasses. There's different words in the English depending on the particular concept you want to get across. Like trespass would mean I'm doing something going into an area that I shouldn't be going into. Uh, Iniquities means that here I am doing a terrible thing that I deserve punishment for. But God's going to be merciful toward their iniquities because he's not going to remember your sins anymore. And that doesn't have his omniscience, as I said, it has his action against you is not going to take place. 
So in case you're still wondering, is this Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant? Listen to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of like, let's say you get a car, and I remember uh, I was all excited when I was able to drive. We had a 57 Mercury, and it was a big car, and it had some speed. But the more I drove it, and my parents, well, after a while, it started falling apart. And so we got a new Chrysler. Wow, that was a lot faster. In other words, in talking about the new car, the first one became obsolete. We, we sold it, traded it in. And what is becoming obsolete, verse 13, and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, this was a big problem in the early church, and Paul talks a lot about it. It, It's this idea of Judaism where they thought that when somebody becomes a Christian, they really need to go through all the ceremonial laws. They need to be circumcised. They have to be following the ceremonial laws, like on the Sabbath and this sort of thing. But no, this is becoming very clear here that with the Old Covenant, and that includes the ceremonial laws with the rules about the Sabbath, etc., it's growing old, and it's ready to vanish away. And so this understanding that new Christians, especially Gentiles, had to be circumcised, had to follow the ceremonial laws, Paul fought a lot against that because he was making the point that no, it's not necessary. It has become obsolete. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all the ceremonial laws, and therefore they are vanishing away. And and that's kind of sad. Sometimes you have some churches that want to bring back laws. And the reason they bring back laws is they're trying to stop you from sinning. So there's actually churches that are against you dancing or playing cards or gambling, etc. No, those things are all permitted by God as long as you don't go uh, beyond to actually hurt yourself. It's, it's like eating. You know, if you become a glutton, that can be sinful. But as long as you stay within the parameters that God permits, these things are not sin. And that's what Judaism was all about, trying to make the people not sin so that they could be saved. Well, you are not saved because you stopped from sinning. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is you're saved because Jesus has forgiven your sins. He is merciful towards your iniquities, and he no longer remembers your sins in the sense of getting even. So this is always a good question to ask a friend of yours. What's the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament? And I guarantee you most of them will talk about the books of the Bible. But no, 
the real distinction between the Old Covenant or Testament and New Covenant or New Testament are the two agreements God had made. The one was based on terrible promises. It was based on my promises. Whereas a new covenant is based on the promises of God, not on me. That's a huge difference. Therefore, I am saved and God gets all the credit because I don't cooperate in my conversion. I do not add something to my conversion. The Holy Spirit, he brings faith into my heart. And when I have that faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am saved. Okay, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the share is here. Encourage you to phone them up if you'd like to donate. If you want to donate to Law and Gospel, that's a different way. Listen at the end of the program, and they'll tell you how to help Law and Gospel uh, stay on the air. And that's going to be heard right away. Till Monday, then, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.